Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 59, The Best of All Possible Worlds. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always, my co-host, Chris Paget. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Josh. How's it going? Good. It's been been a, been a minute since the last time, as it always feels like uh, in these new monthly episodes. So much to say, so much to talk about, right? Yeah, the world always um, lends itself to our podcasting needs, that's for sure. <laughs> yep. The world serves us is what you're saying. Exactly. We can, uh, any given day, just, you know, pick a choice headline and figure that uh, there's enough grist for the mill there. Um, but uh, I tell you, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a challenge. I was watching the, the baseball playoffs the other night, and it was a Yankee Stadium. Right, the the hallowed grounds of Major League Baseball, uh, in what figured to be an elimination game for the Yankees after a, you know, a glorious season, record-setting season uh, for the Yankees, that uh, they were facing elimination at the hands of one of the uh, the provincial teams, right, the Houston <laughs> Astros, uh, and there I noticed uh, behind home plate, seated uh, close to the to the action, was none other. Than uh, the estimable senator from Texas, Ted Cruz. Politicizing baseball again is that's what he was doing, right? Exactly. I'm, I'm sure it's just his natural love of the game that has uh -huh. a, you know, following his team through better or worse. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think for a second that he's a front runner. Would you? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> not. Not Theodore. Somebody posted later, you know, because I was I was a little. Uh, miffed with with some of the yankee fandom but not after the picture i saw of a group of uh, you know bronx originals uh all giving the one finger salute the middle finger salute <laughs> to senator cruz within i would say a radius of maybe 10 feet of where he was standing with a plastered on smile waving for what will i'm sure be one of his you know his uh political campaign uh sound bites uh pan back even a few inches and you find some of those um, those resolute you know Bronx fans Yankee fans giving him that uh that hallowed salute <laughs> tradition baseball tradition oh boy uh I noticed we didn't talk about the Giants much this year by the way so we'll just leave that aside that's the only mention we need to make of our of our team well you know they didn't they did not have a losing season Josh that's right and that means it was a winning season right well, they finished 81 and 81. <laughs> the only time in what the 130 year or so history of the franchise that they won an equal number and lost an equal number of games. I mean, you could you could make the case that's the perfect outcome, right? Really, right? That no one else had as perfect outcome as that. Um, complete symmetry, which is what I always look for in 
in life and in baseball. Well, and we were also happy to see, of course, that the hated Dodgers collapsed again in the postseason, <laughs> losing in the first round. It was exciting here yesterday uh, in San Jose, uh, the uh, the venue for my home office. As you know, uh, I was uh, doing a bit of work early in the day, uh, mid-morning, uh, and suddenly uh, the building, as it were, was moving in certain unnatural directions. I mean, first of all, the building was moving. <laughs> Which is a natural in itself, yeah. <laughs> in a kind of lateral fashion. Uh, and if it and if it hadn't been so, you know, sort of dis- disconcerting, I would have thought that it was almost a comfortable rhythm of right to left to right to left, like a swing back and forth. And of course, uh, what I'm talking about was uh, another one of our California earthquakes which, uh, you know, here in San Jose, the professional uh, soccer team is actually called the the Earthquakes. So uh, you shouldn't be too surprised when one comes along as we sit tight along the San Andreas fault line. The epicenter of this one, uh, which measured, by the way, a 5.1 on the Richter, uh, was just seven miles away from uh, from downtown where I live. I think people outside of California are probably over overrate how often earthquakes happen. I mean, I think you know, down where you are, they probably happen more than than up here in the Central Valley. But it's a pretty rare thing to have one and actually have one that that really shakes a building like that. Um, and you you definitely feel uh, you feel the reality of nature. I think in those moments, uh, the uh, the ephemeral uh, the ephemeral nature of man and the uh, the reality of nature, something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. You know, there's that old saying attributed to the. The military, there's no atheists in a foxhole. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there, there's nobody too cool for too cool for school when the uh, when the shaking starts. I noticed on Twitter afterward, I was trying to find some information about what had just happened, and people were already putting up the the sort of hot takes on Twitter, right, making jokes about it. And Californians, there was one picture of somebody, you know, uh, saying, uh, "Well, now we have to begin the process of cleaning up," and it showed a a toad or a garbage toter had fallen over, you know, yeah. uh, not, not, not exactly, you know, a devastation for sure, but that's not how you feel. You're not feeling so snarky when that building's going side to side, you know what I mean? Right. And, and, and I gotta say that it's going to fit in with our, uh, you know, our episode today is that when it happens, it's almost impossible not to think, is this the big one? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there is a kind of teleology, you know, to the natural history of California, uh, you know, uh, since at least the arrival of Anglo settlers in the 19th century, a kind of tele, you know, you had the great San Francisco earthquake just after the turn of the 20th century. This idea that there's something called the big one and that it is coming, that there is a natural progression, in other words, and this is where the storyline, this is where the narrative is going to go. And so, you know, having bought into that kind of teleology, we might say, of natural history, uh, I can't help but think every time it happens, is this the big one? (laughs) (laughs) We are here, but for a moment. (laughs) Right. There was a a back in the day, uh, the the decade uh, in which I uh, came into uh, fruition, uh, as a young man, uh, the 1970s on television, the, the, the situation comedy known as Sanford and Sons, mm-hmm. the, the comedian yep. Red Fox, right? And and Red Fox, very funny guy, had a shtick 
where he would uh, say, this is this is the big one. And it was a heart attack, supposed to be a heart attack, right? right. I'm, I'm coming to join you, Elizabeth, which was <laughs> his wife who had uh, predeceased him. I'm coming to join you, Elizabeth. Uh, and and I, I think I was doing my own Red Fox yesterday, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, as another, you know, hag miracle, I guess, the, the, the earthquake kind of fits into a little bit of our, at least tangentially, into what we want to discuss, at least in this first segment before we get to our uh our, our 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 main segment but um we had a little uh i wouldn't even call it an earthquake because it was so inconsequential in some ways and so um uh um so unsticky maybe we'll say but uh <laughs> our old friend and i will not say even friend but our i don't know distant acquaintance francis fukuyama best known as the author in i think 1992 of uh the end of history and the last man his kind of triumphal account of uh, the end of communism and the ultimate victory of liberal democracy, which he posited uh, represented the end of history. He was back. He was back in the pages. I, I assume he's been around doing something. I haven't heard from him in a while though, but he was back in the pages of the Atlantic uh, purveyor of the most stale uh, liberal writing you can find. I would say, um, <laughs> I don't know. What, what would you call that piece of his uh which which he posted which he uh published the other day oh i don't know i mean i was tempted to think of it as like political advertising or something but i'm I'm not i'm not sure exactly political advertising for whom maybe you know sort of the old uh guard republican party what's left of it you know the kind of right wall street button down self-styled conservatives uh neocons uh, cer- certainly not the hair on fire screaming at a rally Trump Republicans. Uh, no, no, too uncouth for him. No, too uncouth for him. But that that kind of um, smug, uh, you know, we won the Cold War yeah. style conservatism, which, you know, again, just for context, that's when the book, his book, The End of History, was published. I think it was, what, 92, I want to say? I believe, yeah, 92. You know, still fresh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the imminent breakup of the Soviet Union. And so that was a time for the neocons to really do a lot of uh, a lot of chest-thumping and bragging about how they had won. You know, the, the liberal democracy, uh, as he styles it, had won the great contest of history, and now history was over. You know, yeah. sort of like when Steph Curry was leading the Warriors to the championship last season and gave the sign that it was time for everyone else to go to bed because yeah. the Warriors were now the champs. That was uh, a kind of sports-wise taunt um, in the moment uh, of, of that victory. But Francis Fukuyama's sports-wise chant was to declare something even more magnificent, and that was the end of history itself. There was nothing left to decide about which way history was moving and so in this piece updated i guess now gosh josh i hate because it ages us right yeah it's 20 30 years 30 years later just shows a good hustle never dies it just gets reprinted in the atlantic yes and what's so funny about it is like for the for that past 30 years people have been roasting him because (laughs) his book was like immediately (laughs) so irrelevant and so wrong but in, then he comes comes back for 30 years later, and the, the title of this piece is more proof that this really is the end of history. <laughs> so 30 years of, of lack of proof, of complete contradiction of, of his argument, but now we have more proof this really is the end of history. 
Um, I don't know if we need to get too much into the content, if you can call it that, of this of this piece. But you're right; it is this triumphalism um, based around the idea, I guess, that um, it turns out that um, that these kind of autocratic societies like Russia and China are not actually doing that well, and therefore that means that um, liberal democracy is still the king. It's still the end point of history. I think he literally calls it the end point of history. Yeah. Um, yeah. I that, think you so. know, as we like to say that, you know, the, the, the underlying, uh, belief of, you know, as you like to say, us history is that, well, we're all on the right path. We're all going in the right direction. We're on the right road. Um, if we just like, you know, if we repeat that every once in a while, then it must be true. Yeah. It's what we call in the, in the business, a, a teleology, the idea that history is moving in a specific direction from a kind of beginning point, imagine, you know, it, it, take your pick sometime in the past, I don't know, the invention of fire or maybe the writing of the Declaration of Independence, some, you know, epochal moment. Uh, and that from that point till now, uh, that history has been tracking in this progressive uh, direction, this arc of history uh, is now near its culminating point. And, and it's not clear. I mean, clearly this borrows from uh, what a kind of uh, theology, you know, uh, eschatology, yeah. having uh, an end time, or at least a millennial, a millennialism, the idea of a, a culminating point at which all the normal affairs of earth will, you know, congeal and there will be, oh, what, a second coming of some, you know, salvation moment or something. I mean, it, you know, that's the way it spells out in religion. It's never too clear, I guess, partly because I refuse to read the book. Uh, <laughs> You're never but, supposed to admit that. Was there a chapter at the end where he said, and this is what happens next? I mean, mo most people who write those kinds of books, I mean, even, even Karl Marx had a hard time with that, right? You know, they're positing this idea of history moving in a direction toward a culminating point. It's all about sort of getting to that point in real time. But then it's never terribly clear you know what's supposed to happen next that's kind of where the i guess what the the fantasy writers take over or something yeah. you know but um yeah it's not so it's not terribly clear do we just sit around sort of smug in our victory get our championship rings you know? <laughs> you're, you're you're rife with sports metaphors today <laughs> it's yeah it's uh you know it's my whole uh, frame of reference uh -huh. for human existence but uh here was one of my favorite quotes i did read the article Yes, I, I did. I would not read the original book. It was really long. To be, in your defense, it was very, very long. Yeah, no, I, I would only read the gloss, you know, on yep. it or the reviews of it. It was it was pretty clear because there were a few books out at that time that, that were equally sort of smug. And well, uh, OK, so in the article, though, which is actually quite short, as I say, mm -hmm. it's more like a political maybe campaign ad, you know, right. that um, he says, and yet liberal democracy has endured and come back repeatedly because the alternatives are so bad. Yeah. And so I had to chuckle because it's like, well, we may not be great, but we're not as bad as those alternatives. You know, that's some boast, isn't it? Right. Well, that's, that's what's so funny is just how like the most middle of the road writer making the most middle of the road uh, projection, like, you know, at least, you know, Christian eschatology ends with like this, this millennial, uh, you know, millennial event of, you know, destruction and creation and the saving of the good and the destruction mm -hmm. of the evil and all that kind of stuff. At least Marxism ends with, you know, the victor, the proletariat in a classless society. And then we get Fukuyama's version, which is that, 
you know, you get a system where you have to compromise your morals every single day. And, you know, there's people <laughs> starving on the streets and it's like, that's, that's our, that's our great victory. That's what history is moving towards this system that kind of works every once in a while, <laughs> mostly kind of just sails along. My favorite, I think my favorite line uh, is where he says, um, we've seen frightening reversals to the progress of liberal, liberal democracy over the past 15 years, but setbacks do not mean that the underlying narrative is wrong. So there you go. Just keep that confidence that your underlying narrative is correct and it will never be wrong, I guess, um, as long as you keep saying it to yourself. Enough. Yeah, there's a disconnect there, isn't there? In other words, it, it sort of definite, definitionally stands on its own and doesn't have to be bothered with that kind of what empirical evidence or something, right. you know, and I, I, we were laughing, you know, I, I was following on Instagram, a, a local feed here in San Jose. It's kind of a downtown San Jose feed, you know, trying to stay up with what whatever's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a guy over in the park across the street from where I live called St. James Park, which uh, for a long time, actually, I mean, not just since the quarantine, but from what I understand, even because uh, my mother was born in San Jose uh, in back in the uh, 1929, that I hope she doesn't mind me giving that uh, information out, that uh, since at least the 20s, but uh, even probably before, that St. James Park has been a place for those who we would now call uh, our unhoused mm. neighbors, right? And so somebody was trying to do one of these kind of urban renewal videos where they had a guy standing in St. James Park, you know, it's a, it's election season, right? So we're going to be, you know, choosing a new mayor, for example, here in another week or so, uh, doing a spot with this sort of chirpy, upbeat message about it's time to reclaim St. James Park. And, and he doesn't say specifically reclaim it from what, and it's a very tight frame, by the way, the video frame that he's in, because you know, if, if he moved back, even the cameraman moved back even a few feet to a wider angle, uh, chances are at any given time of the day, you'd see some of our unhoused neighbors out there, maybe, you know, some some folks sleeping on the grass or laying on the picnic table or, you know, sitting around chewing the fat, you know, uh, uh, Biden time, you know, on any given day uh, uh, because of the housing crisis in California uh, has left, you know, an extraordinary number of Californians without permanent shelter. And so St. James Park is one of those places where people tend to congregate. So he's doing his level best to make it seem like this sort of positive image. But at one point he's standing by a fountain and, and, and you know, you, you can't quite cheat it, Josh, because even in the frame that they were showing, which was a tight frame, mostly on his face, you could see just in the background, there was like a piece of discarded clothing laying on the ground. You know, yeah. it's like it managed to make its way into the frame. <laughs> it snuck it, know, yeah. It this total moment of unbelievability, you know, and instead of, you know, frankly, acknowledging what the state of affairs are, uh, you know, um, sort of papering that over with this, um, as I say, sort of peppy, upbeat idea of families coming to the park and children uh, playing on the, you know, the, the the play structures and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? He struck me as being altogether very nervous. Right. <laughs> it wasn't, it well, wasn't entirely convincing, but that's what Fukuyama reminds me of, right? Yeah. Is okay. you sort of hold to the line, you got your thesis and you're going to run with it, but you can't pull that camera up too far back, can you? No, that's, it's, it's such a perfect metaphor because you know, the exact kind of history we've been critiquing for 58 and one third episodes or whatever at this point, um, you know, you can kind of think of it as it's like this perfectly cropped history 
right? <laughs> Where only the, right. you get just the right picture in, but none of the kind of uncomfortable truths creep into the frame or, you know, every once in a while they do, but, you know, maybe it's a sleeve of a jacket as opposed to, you know, an actual unhoused person. Um, it's, you know, Ted Cruz, the baseball game, um, you know, smiling happily at the camera in his campaign ad. But then you, you know, you zoom out like three feet and all you see is him being flipped off by, by angry New Yorkers. Um, so, you know, I think we've, we've, we've kind of talked about that metaphor before that you do need to zoom out. You do need to see the big picture because when we let people frame their stories as they see fit, then you're only getting that very limited view and they can turn that limited view very easily into these kind of triumphal stories of the march of progress, the end of history or what have you. And, you know, it's, it's so weird to, to present, you know, the, the, the survival of liberal democracy as, as this triumph, because is history all just kind of, was it all really just leading up to the election of Joe Biden? Is that what we're supposed to see from this? Is that the triumph that, that he's trying to present? And if that is, then um, it's no wonder that people have kind of fallen out of love or, are maybe not as committed to liberal democracy as they as they once were because you know it's not a very compelling message i would say as much as uh as, as fukuyama would like to believe it it it's so and kind of that's something we, we've talked about a lot is that you know if we really want to create a, a better world we can do that through a truer version of the past but we also need to have a set of principles and ideals and visions that are not limited by people like fukuyama who are only give us you know, one, one outcome, one answer, um, one way in which history can play out. Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, it, it smacks of, you know, a false, a false optimism, a foolish optimism. Yeah. You know, we, we call the uh, episode today, the best of all possible worlds, which is, is a nod, uh, to the, uh, the work by Voltaire and the, you know, the 18th century, uh, Candide, Right. I, I guess the phrase actually came from Leibniz, the uh, the German mathematician yeah. and physicist. But um, uh, this idea of, of in Voltaire's work, at least, of of the best of all possible worlds, and and the main character, you have Dr. Pangloss, right, is mm-hmm. this sort of foolish optimist. Uh, and and it's in the era, by the way, of another earthquake. So we also thought it meshed up uh, pretty well with, right. with what's going on here. Uh, is the great Lisbon. Uh, earthquake of the 18th century, which is devastating uh, earthquake that that leveled much of uh, you know the, the Portuguese city, and uh, and yet in in the face of it, you know, Doctor Doctor Pangloss was you know was optimistic, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and so in that kind of way that Voltaire could, you know, using a sort of parody or satire or something, you know, to reveal the absurdity of that that kind of thinking, and. Uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, Joshua, appreciate this because right now in my world history class, my students just wrote the essay, and this is the uh, the, the early part of the world history survey we call History 307 at, at American River College, uh, where we make, you know, the uh, the survey cover from the, the Paleolithic or Old Stone Age era to uh, the era of, of, of agriculture, the Neolithic revolution, as it's sometimes called. And so, and I know you do this too, because we've commiserated many times on this mm. question. You know, you want to ask the students, you know, why did this happen? Why after 240,000 years did Homo sapiens turn toward agriculture, you know, from, from the ways of foraging, right? Which had yeah. proven to be uh, successful in fostering the spread of the species and the replication of the species, the reproduction of the species, that sort of thing. Why after 240,000 years, 
you know, is there going to be a different model essentially of, um, you know, of, of, of food production and, and uh, social organization, et cetera, known as agriculture. And, and we asked that question because we, we want our students to truly be in that historical moment and not use that kind of Panglossian, you know, answer. Well, the reason they invented agriculture is because agriculture is better. Yep. You know, in other words, there there was some obvious incentive or advantage that would lead them to improve or progress mm-hmm. through the development of agriculture. And I know you do as well as I do. Try to forewarn them, you know, with our lectures and our discussions. Don't say that in the essay. Don't <laughs> yeah. tell me that mankind uh, transitioned to agriculture because there was some inherent uh, benefit that uh, had just never been realized. But now, thanks to some inf- insightful thinking or something, was now being right. And so you get answers like, well, because agriculture could feed more people, mm-hmm. you know, which is true. Uh, that is per square acre, you know, the density of agricultural production could sustain a larger population. But that begs, you know, or raises the question, why would having a larger population be a good thing? You know, yeah. <laughs> In other words, you create all these sort of normative reasons for why agriculture was good. And looking at it from hindsight, because we live in an agricultural society still today, and thinking that because of the teleology today is better than yesterday, that therefore the answer, and it's a circular logic, right? That agriculture had to be created because it would give us a better today. Yes, because it led to us. Yeah. If not for agriculture, we wouldn't be where we are today. Is that <laughs> thank you? <laughs> wait, wait. Where where are we today? And why is that the the ideal? And again, I just it just points to like how often our students and our, uh, you know, throughout our society, we're, we're kind of just told to, to compromise, right? Told to just accept things as they are, um, as the way they should be, as the best of all pop- possible worlds. But what, you know, we've been trying to argue for, how long has it been now? Two years? Yeah, 59 episodes. 59 episodes. What we've been trying to argue is that, you know, one of the things we we really need to do is is enlarge our imaginations, you know, zoom out that camera to see the reality of the world around us. And try to proffer some some actual solutions not because we're so you know forward thinking and can can see a, a you know a future that's clear in our minds but because the past actually offers us all kinds of alternatives all kinds of ideas all kinds of of figures who we're constantly thinking about you know what can we do to make this world function better um and the fact that we end up with you know this kind of milk toast liberal democracy which again does some things well and does a lot of things pretty unwell, uh, which has us in the midst of a climate cat- catastrophe. You know, I don't think it's too radical to say that that if that's the solution, you know, proffered by people like Fukuyama, then um, I think we still need to keep searching because that doesn't sound like the end of history to me. No, it doesn't to me either. And and I think, you know, we we miss that only at our own expense. You know, because unlike, you know, one of my uh, student responses, and I had some great essays, don't get yes. me wrong, it's just a mixed bag, really. But it's predictable that, you know, I'm going to get someone, someone saying something like, well, the reason they developed agriculture is because human beings were growing hungrier, you yeah. know, or, or, 
you know, um, some normative, you know, sort of. They, they wanted to settle down. That's the one I always get. They yeah, wanted, they to, settle wanted down. to settle down. It was tiring, roaming around, trying to find food all the time. And none of those things are true. But, you know, as historians, we try to understand, you know, among other things, change, uh, moments of change, whether it be revolutionary moments of change or more prolonged, gradual or evolutionary change. But the, but the one thing as historians we understand you know, as as we are rooted in sort of the temporal spatial dimension of understanding human existence, that time and space matter. Yeah. That 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 uh, nothing is quite permanent in that sense. Not even uh, the end of history. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what we decided we wanted to talk about today, then, as we transition to our next segment, is how we end up, unfortunately, too often reinforcing that kind of Panglossian view that it's all working out exactly the way it was supposed to by the nature of the courses we teach and the textbooks we assign uh, and why, and this will come to no surprise, as you point out to our listeners, why it is time to pretty radically reimagine both the uh, history survey, as it's called, you know, the sort of freshman year introductory history survey, um, uh, along with uh, the kinds of things we assign students to read, uh, including textbooks, uh, which you, once again, as, as our faithful uh, listeners will recall, you are now in the middle of that fight for uh, a better textbook. So you're going to speak to that uh, as well. The sleep you're getting won't be smooth or easy. Disease, plague, and pestilence complete me, delete me. The vacuum of my absence is the presence of catastrophe. Everybody on the mountaintop thought they were man enough. Every hero has a plan until the blueprint self-destructs. Everything the light touches is up for discussion. Heavy conversation, ultimatum bluffing, then nothing. Uh, All right, so yeah, I will I will talk about uh, the, the work on the textbook in a bit, but just to, to kind of get our, our, you know, terms out, um, when we talk about the survey, you know, we're, we're community college instructors. And, and so that means that really our main task and our, our only task we're really allowed in many ways, if we try to get too specific, they, they, I think they wrap us on the knuckles or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, our main task is to teach these, these introductory surveys. And so these would be, you know, these big classes or these big, uh, uh, topics, um, often split into multiple parts where we lay out, for instance, as, as you've taught for 30 some years now, I believe, you know, the U.S. History Survey, which is this big, grand narrative of, of the U.S. split into two sections with some dispute about where those that that split should should lie. Um, and then, you know, we have other ones. I, I do the World History Survey. You do the World History Survey, the first part, um, which, again, is this big, grand narrative of human history. Uh, collectively, the two parts go from, as you said, the Paleolithic up to the present. We do Asian history. Um we do Latin American history, all these kind of big surveys. So the idea is, you know, what we're doing, I guess, is trying to introduce new students, introductory students, freshmen to these enormous historical topics to give them some background in these big um, in, in these big topics so they can. And we'll talk about this, uh, I guess, no, no history. We'll, we'll talk about some of the, the, the question of what is the survey for in a bit. But, you know, I think the assumption is that that students have to have some background in history so they can move forward with whatever field they're going to go into. Um, and then kind of partnered with that are, are these these textbooks. And we were, you know, talking off mic, actually, 
about the kind of, I don't know, um, the relationship, we'll just say, between the textbook and the survey, because in some ways, the surveys are created to serve the textbooks, which is kind of backward. Um, in other ways, the textbook is um, created to serve the survey, which I guess is how it's technically supposed to be. But for instance, when we go through curriculum, so we create a new class and we go through cu curriculum, um, one of the things we have to do in proposing the curriculum is we have to list the textbooks we're going to be using for the class. Um, and so in the last couple of years, I, I uh, created a, a class on the Islamic, uh, I think I called it the, the Islamic World Survey. And the idea was to do this this big, you know, kind of broad survey of of the history of Islam, um, getting across, you know, its its origins, but also the kind of global dimensions of of Islam. Um, and one of the big challenges for me is that I had to fill in textbooks in in that curriculum. Uh, you can't you can't have the survey if you don't have the textbooks. So um, so this is kind of you know the challenge we we deal with is that we want to tell these we have to tell rather you know the the, the purpose of these classes is to tell these kind of grand narratives of these these histories whether it's the biggest the biggest and broadest in terms of world history or those national surveys like U.S. history our job is to tell those those histories and hopefully, according to the curriculum system, be aided in that task by um, by some textbook or another. Is that a good good rundown of, of what we're, we're dealing with here? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, with something like the National Survey, like the U.S. History Survey, there's also built into it, as we'll say here in a bit, you know, a kind of um, overriding uh, thesis or something, yes. you know, that, that whose purpose was to assimilate uh, kids, you know, young yes. people uh, into some kind of, you know, civic identity. Um, and when we're still fighting that, because, you know, we've, we've heard recently about how one of our, our U.S. history courses, you know, isn't going to qualify any longer for what they call the, the U.S. Constitution requirement um, that many colleges still hold to, uh, that if you take our course, in other words, you won't get credit where you transfer uh, for the U.S. Constitution requirement. And so that, you know, this creates a kind of panic, you know, in the ranks, like, well, what, you know, we need, what do we need to do to make sure that it qualifies? And and that's really where the Panglossian thing comes in. You know, Pan, Dr. Pangloss and Candide said, the reason you have a nose, Josh, is to hold your glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the reason you have a survey course is so that you can assign a textbook. You know, uh, the reason why you teach U.S. history is so students can read about the Constitution or something. And yet, you know, it, it's it's this sort of foolish optimism because then nobody really ever bothers to find out what exactly happens when you do those things. Uh, and what we've understood now for a while is the one thing that doesn't happen is that our students don't come away. And even for that matter, we as as professors, our colleagues, et cetera, our schools don't seem to come away with any clear idea of how to actually fix anything. Yeah, that's right. And I actually, as you were talking, I, I feel like we I need to add that um, one of the reasons we want to talk about this this week is because um you know, as I think we've said before, in January, we're going to be at the American Historical Association Conference, uh, and we're going to be leading a, a panel discussing this very topic, like what is the survey for and, and can it survive? Should it survive? I think is the is the, the title that we we provided. And so this is a little, uh, I think, rehearsal for that discussion in many ways as we try to 
um, you know, kind of lay out what our arguments are and how we're going to present this to a to a, a different kind of audience, I would say, than uh, the people we reach on on this show. Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's it's timely for us also because as a department, we're working on various curriculum reform issues. Now we've talked yeah. about the Western Civ, which is one of the uh, you know sort of anchor surveys, you might say. Uh, you know, in the American uh, higher education system. And as is the U.S. history survey, again, these sort of freshman uh, level history courses that take the, the broad survey approach to, as you put it, large chunks of either time or space. Um, and so we're in the middle of this work right now. And, yeah. and with the podcast and with our AHA panel, you know, was what we're trying to do is work through with colleagues you know, this this conundrum really of of how do we change courses that don't seem to actually accomplish much of what we, I think, many of us would think, you know, are the most pressing needs, you know, uh, for our time, you know, as as you know, as as social economic beings living in states. Uh, confronting things like, you know, my nervous interlocutor over at St. James Park hmm. was trying his best to ignore something like a housing crisis and why in an otherwise upbeat and cheery assessment of liberal democracy uh, or even what they would call the American dream, you know, the idea of homeownership. Are there so many people who are unhoused? Well, you, you're not going to be able to answer that question, are you, from the uh, the standard uh, textbook survey version of the story. So, uh, yeah, I, and I'm anxious to hear you talk more because we haven't uh, been on, it's been about a month that you've had more opportunity now to work through these issues for your part with the uh, the OER project is the free textbook yeah. project in trying to create a modern world history textbook. So uh, give us an update. How's all that going? Um. Bad? Is that is that fair? Is that, is that enough? <laughs> poorly? Um, so, so, I mean, it's going poorly in a way that I think is pretty instructive about the challenges that we face, um, which is, you know, why I wanted to talk about it a little bit, because as I think I, I think I talked about this in the last episode, I don't remember what we talked about uh, five minutes ago, much less one month ago. But, um, you know, the, the 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 project was was presented as um, we a group of collaborators was going to try to create a textbook that would um, explore modern world history through the lens of anti-racism, equity, and social justice. All right? But when I say create, the actual grant was to take an existing uh, OER textbook, and OER means open educational resources, so these are free resources for college students, was to take a, a pre-existing world history textbook, and then uh, onto that, we would remix it. That's the term they use. Remix it uh, to, you know, kind of fix the problems with it, to, you know, add this lens of anti-racism, uh, equity, and social justice, and then turn out in the end a better, I was about to say product, then it made me physically ill to, to say that, um, a better resource, I'll say, for our students. Um, and so that's, that's you know, what kind of drew me in is this idea that, oh, this is a chance to do something new, to do something different, to create a different kind of resource for students that maybe is not as um burdened we'll say with some of the worst aspects of of kind of traditional historiography and and historical narrative what i found 
though. I mean, there's there, I, I can't get into all the issues that are going on, but I'll, I'll restrict it to one particular aspect. What has become really apparent to me is that um, you can't actually create a anti-racist history of the modern world simply by grafting an anti-racist message onto a pre-existing onto pre-existing content or rather if you do which is what we're doing unfortunately you're going to end up with something that is going to fall far far short of what it needs to be um so that's that's the kind of existential crisis i'm going through right now which is that what i want to do is what's is exactly what is not going to get done in this project um and it's not going to get done because to actually create an anti-racist modern world history requires more than a 10 month period of time requires more than uh, a bunch of scholars working separately from each other and crafting their own chapters you know basically independent what it's actually going to require is a full rethinking of virtually everything we do in world history and everything we do in a textbook um so that's been my uh that's been my big revelation i can talk more about that but i don't know any any responses to what, what i was just saying yeah somehow i had the image there of a a Ku Klux Klansman standing there in a white robe, right? And someone going, how can we make this anti-racist? Well, yeah. let's put like a little <laughs> ethnic hat on top of it. Yeah. You know? And so you get a Klansman wearing a hat. Right. Um, well, okay. So maybe that's, you know, a little exaggerated. But <laughs> maybe a little, yeah. Well, but, but I mean, if the assumption is that there is built into a narrative some, um, you know, um, uh, what a kind of um, either imperial, uh, colonial, um, racial, uh, what framing, in other mm -hmm. words, because you're dealing with modern history, right? Yeah. So you're talking about the age of, you know, modern empire, capitalism. In fact, you mm -hmm. said earlier off, off mic that, uh, you know, in your teaching, you have these four elements, right? And I think it was what imperialism, nationalism, Racism, capitalism yeah. and racism right yeah. well so all of those things are embedded so that's my version of the Klansman. you know yeah. i mean maybe maybe a better example would be what someone wearing a british naval officer's yeah. uniform if you don't like Klansman or something um and those things are already embedded into the narrative and so you're told to put these anti-racist or, or equity elements into the book but that would presumably require as i think you're suggesting starting over wouldn't it yeah, the the, the uh, metaphor I was using, I think I texted this to you, is like you're a dentist and you got a patient and you're you're about to drill out the their cavity and as far as you can tell, it's just one little rotted out part. And as soon as the drill hits the tooth, it just explodes. And you realize the whole thing is rotted out. That there's not there's nothing solid there at all. Um, that's what it kind of feels like as I go through this. I'm trying to write this stuff. I'm like, okay, so I can do this better. I can do this part better. But once I pull that string, then as I switch metaphors. Once I pull that string, then I realize that string's attached to everything else. And I can't really pull it without everything else falling apart at the same time. So what I need to do ultimately is just, I got to rip out that string. I got to keep pulling it and pulling it and pulling it. And what I'll end up with uh, as I move to a nicer metaphor than a rotted out tooth, I guess, is a bunch of fabric. Um, and then it's going to be up to to me or, you know, it's up to someone, I guess, to then sew that back together in, in a way that's fundamentally different than what it is. Um, and so, you know, the, again, that's just the, the scale of the, of the project just became apparent to me in a way that maybe I should, I was, what was naive to not see before, 
Um, but sometimes you really need to like, you know, dig into that tooth or start pulling that thread or whatever metaphor you like better um, to really see the, the, the scale of the, of the challenge ahead. And it's, uh, it's been kind of a frustrating process because, um, you know, you, it's, it's something that cannot be done in the time frame we have. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of putting out something that's not fully going to radicalize or revolutionize or fundamentally alter the way we think about modern world history just increasingly seems like not enough. Um, and so that, that, that need to compromise to get something out is, uh, it's, it's weighing on me. I'll just say right now, because that's not what I want to be doing. I, I, you know, I want to do this full scale or, or not at all, but I, I can't really just do it. Not at all <laughs> at this point in the, in the process. Um, so what well, I'll do instead remember, is Josh, talk about history, it here. History against the grain is, is your therapy. And so you get, to, uh, you get to speak openly here about the uh, the traumas you've experienced. And if I, I want you to talk about it, somewhat granular uh, terms and what you've actually faced with the things you're writing about. Uh, I know you told me that one of your committee members is is also kind of ruining the day that when she, she was a faculty Senate president, statewide faculty Senate president, but was part of approving this OER grant project that uh, would create this um, anti-racist, you know, equity-based uh, textbook that if she had understood better when she was actually voting to approve all these sort of, you know, well-intentioned, even, you know, sort of feel-good mandates of what it was actually going to take on the ground to do it, she might have thought, you know, more carefully about it. And and I and I have to say, you know, I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember that in the 1980s, the equivalent movement was toward what they called multi multiculturalism. Yeah. Right. And it, that new books, you know, based on the new histories that were being written at the time, new social histories, new uh, gender histories, et cetera, um, that, that you could now recognize more uh, and diverse peoples in the history stories you tell. So if, if in U S national history, the narrative was too, uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon or something, you know, that that you needed to talk about, like here in San Jose, how, you know, uh, Mexican people and, and immigrant people also were a part of the gold rush years or something, you know, right. how China, there was a Chinatown here in, in San Jose. And so you and I were laughing about that because what multiculturalism ended up doing is in, in the textbooks, for example, is you basically kept the same narrative of, of progress of you know of liberal democratic progress that had always been but you put a like a little textbook feature like a little bounded frame you know on the page where it would say and here's how the chinese immigrants made food from their walk or something yeah. you know during the gold rush and what as we've said before on here you know among others Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz who does native american history has said multicultural and uh, culturalism ends up doing is somehow making those people in effect, complicit, you know, sort of turning them into collaborators in this great capitalist, imperialist juggernaut, so that, for example, something like San Jose, which was part of the greater West in that U.S. Mm -hmm. history narrative, right, the sort of westward movement, you end up getting, you know, Chinese people and Native American people and Mexican people who are all really part of it all along, you know, and the takeaway is what? Well, they were included and it's all working out, you know, and that's my guy over in the park, not, you know, not panning out to see all the unhoused people actually not flourishing and not doing well. 
you know, and not being complicit in this system. So it reminded me of what you were facing there because you're taking this already established narrative, which has all the problems we say we want to overcome, but we don't start the narrative over. We just try to put some um, accessory features or something. I mean, is that what you're feeling? Well, yeah, what, what, I'm just re first responding to what you were saying. It's almost like the, the problem can be solved through better typesetting, <laughs> through better content. You just need a nice clear box somewhere, right? But all that box does is really just push into a little narrower frame, the original text, which now has to go through two pages instead of being into fit, fitting into one. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's fundamentally it, is that um, you can't deal with the problems of, of racism, imperialism, you know, nationalism, capitalism, you know, as they kind of affect the way we think about history, right? Um, I've, I've been calling them the four distortions. Uh, because these are the four things that make it so hard to think about the past outside the framing of those of those those ideas um, that we can't, you know, even like, you know, think about capitalism, going back to what we were saying about, uh, you know, doing that early world history and, and getting students to think about, you know, why agriculture actually did happen and why it was uh, what was lost, basically, in the, in the process of gaining agriculture you know, where capitalism kind of becomes a distorting effect there is that students are are kind of trained to believe that that growth is the ultimate end of of life, right? That that's what we're all here to do is to produce more things, to be wealth producers. And so that idea, I think, you know, kind of circles back to students when they're thinking about that, that moment in time, why would people want to transition from foraging to farming? Well, it's obvious because if wealth producing is the ultimate goal of all, of all humanity, then what better way to produce more wealth than to, you know, be able to plant fields as opposed to gather from, the natural environment. So, I mean, this has come up a lot, you know, so first of all, for, for me in my own writing, I'm, I'm doing my best. And what the best means is that very little is getting done. I keep getting caught on like, how can I possibly do this without, you know, falling into the sovereignty trap that we've talked about without mm -hmm. privileging, you know, uh, a set of assumptions that come from the West uh, that come from kind of, you know, Western history or, you know, our ideas of Western history, but it's also in, you know, in reading the, you know, some of the other chapters in the book, it just, you really see the challenge of it. Cause like when you talk about the industrial revolution, for instance, uh, this is, this is a, you know, an example where this, this comes up. Um, you have to, you have to, it, obviously that has to be covered, right? Industrial revolution is, is massive industrialization. We want to call it that instead of revolution, but um, it's massive, right? It absolutely transformative in the same way that agriculture was transformative. But how do you talk about industrialization in a way that, is something other than the story of of uh of of progress of innovation of growth of triumph of something other than just Europeans doing things i guess is 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 the big question and the way it tends to get done i'll just say this in the in broadest terms i can the way it tends to get done is that instead of saying you know Europeans did this or Europeans did that uh, it turns into that kind of the kind of passive voice that this stuff was done and this affected people and where industrialization happened, um, you know, these changes occurred. But what that ends up doing is it, it ends up telling a story of Europeans without actually being specific or direct enough to, to, to say that. And the broader thing, and I think we talked about this again off, off mic a little bit, but what ends up happening in a lot of these these attempts to be, you know, anti-racist, equity focused, and social justice focused, 
is you still get to this this same challenge. You still get to the same moment where you realize that the the nature of the discussion of industrialization of you know the rise of liberalism of the rise of imperialism still ends up sounding a lot like history being made by certain people and then history operating upon other people right that ends up still being the same dichotomy where if we want to recognize the um you know some of the horrors of modernity some of the ways that you know as we talked about with fukuyama liberal democracy actually doesn't just triumph it tramples people um if you want to understand you know the slave trade in all its viciousness and and inhumanity and all that kind of stuff the challenge that i keep coming across is how do you tell those stories without turning the rest of the world into just passive victim victims of history um because that doesn't get us far enough i think right in the end you you actually have to and and i think you 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 have a story that will speak to this as well you have to not just recognize the horrors of history but you also have to recognize the people involved um the people involved who were not just being trampled passively the people involved who were not just you know witnessing stuff happening to them but the people who were thinking about it and having you know a crisis of of belief and who were trying to reimagine a new kind of world and trying to figure out how they could fit into the world that was being invented around them um and kind of what i want to say resuscitating uh or or bringing out the lives of those affected ends up being the biggest challenge because that's not what the story is meant to do the story is meant to talk about progress whether or not they use that term the story is meant to talk about progress and growth and innovation and change but in a world that was increasingly dominated by a few european countries it becomes very difficult and this is what i've seen in you know some of the other chapters and you know this is the thing i've been i've been working really hard to to get around is you still end up with that same story that even now you've now recognized there are victims of this process which i guess is better than the just purely triumphal version um you still just get the same story of of active europeans and passive everybody else um and again to really really rewrite this story to really tell us tell it a history that truly engages with humanity and not just certain humans in certain places requires us to rethink everything about about that 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 story to to uh, again bring out new voices and to make sense of not just the thinking of those who were in the the countries that were winning quote unquote um even those who were in the countries that were winning that were criticizing the system but to remember that you know well before we get to you know to use an example we've talked about uh Hannah Arendt you know uh talking about fascism and imperialism you've got you know Indians who are in the like 1920s and 19-teens talking about you know they're not using the term fascism yet because the, the term doesn't didn't yet exist but talking about um the kind of barbarism of imperialism right talking about the link between liberalism and imperialism talking about um you know these systems of power and the way they actually operate in a way that people in Europe had not quite come to but what we tend to do in these stories is we keep going back to european critics that's the, in many ways that's the best that that happens in these stories we keep coming back to european critics criticizing the system that europe's europeans created and still leaving out the voice of those who are on the ground who are seeing the system not from afar but being imposed upon them 
um, who are witnessing and, and observing and, and trying to come up with, with um, alternatives. And I think that's why Fukuyama's piece kind of hit me in a certain way, because what Fukuyama is saying is there are no alternatives, that liberal democracy is the best we can ever, we can ever get to. And what I want to say and what I would love to get across in a true world history that actually is anti-racist is that was never true, that there were always people speaking out, rethinking the world, reimagining the world, trying to come up, come up with solutions. And it was people like Fukuyama that were the ones telling them that's not practical, right? That can't happen. You're too, uh, it's unrealistic. You're too idealistic. You're living in the clouds, as they used to say of Gandhi, as opposed to living in the, the world of men. Um, and I think if we're going to create a better world history, we have to take those people seriously. Um, the people who are trying to reimagine things. Um, and we can't just say that because their resistance failed, quote unquote, that their voices cease to matter. It sounds like to me what you're saying, you know, if you'll allow me, a yeah, couple absolutely. of things are really important. You know, one, and we've used this term before, it comes from Robin Wall Kimmer, who's a um, contemporary ecologist, biologist and uh, Native uh, American e ecology activist uh, wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. What what Kimmerer talks about, and then she just won the MacArthur Genius Grant. No bad. Uh, I, I, I know you're bummed to be edged out another year from it's, MacArthur. It's, yeah, 20 straight years I haven't won that. It's crazy. <laughs> Next year's your year. I, I got cross my fingers. <laughs> She's... Uh, talking about what she calls, in fact, she was here in San Jose not too long ago, I'm a list to her speak, talking about what she calls restoration, you know, a play on the word restoration, yeah. uh, through narrative, through the stories we tell ourselves. And I think that's really what you're describing here in Kimmerer's sense is, is restoring something from the human experience that is really vital to our wellness and being as, as modern people, you know, restoration, creating the story in that way, you know, which doesn't mean just some sort of cute uh, add-ons like, you know, in a story on the gold rush, the Chinese immigrant, you know, in his walk as if you just sort of add a little seasoning to the melting pot, you'll have a, a better story. But in a serious way, that means listening to other voices, you know, I mean, what would my guy, my nervous guy over in St. James Park, what if they would have allowed his cameraman to back up a little bit and said, hey, we're going to go talk to this person over here. You know, right. this this unhoused person. Uh, listen to that voice. What are you what are you doing in the park? How'd you come to be here? You know, how, how does the park serve you as a citizen of San Jose? You know, um, what you know, what are, what are your you know, what are your intentions? You know, that kind of actually listening, yeah. right, just to, to something that may not fit with that tidy narrative, you know. Um, and and I know that's what you've been doing. And you know, one of the things we're we're talking about here is not just in a token way, featuring other voices, but but really centering those other voices. And I know you've been doing a lot of reading lately uh, in Indian history, sort of the you know the 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 late colonial period of Indian history, and a, and a guy in particular uh, whose uh, whose voice I think has informed your understanding. Yeah, so um, Rabindranath Tagore is this guy. I think I probably referenced before, and he's come up at various moments. But he's this kind of you know genius thinker of, um, as you said, late colonial India, he's writing in the kind of early decades of the 20th century. Um, and he's, you know, kind of a contemporary of Gandhi. They're, they're kind of both friendly, but also kind of rivals of each other. They have these differences of opinion and Tagore writes these very, uh, 
distinct critiques of, of Gandhi at various points. And Gandhi does his thing of saying, yes, you're right. And then he goes on and keeps doing the thing he's doing. Um, but, uh, but Tagore is a guy that, you know, is both massively famous in some ways. Um, he was actually the first Nobel prize winner in literature who didn't come from, um, a, you know, a, a non, I believe the first non-white actually, uh, Nobel prize winner in mm -hmm. literature and maybe, uh, the teens i can't remember 19 teens sometime in there but he's also this very distinct thinker who um becomes something of a celebrity um in the early 20th century so much so that he uh he does these speaking tours and he goes to the united states and he goes to britain and he goes to japan actually the japanese really like him um as, as a thinker and invite him on the speaking tour and he goes to these places and he gives these speeches that get collected into a book called it's just called nationalism um, and what it is, is his screed against against nationalism. And as I, I think I, was, I texted this to you, it's funny, he got invited to these places. I don't know what they're expecting, but he did not get invited back to any, <laughs> any of those places because he got these American audiences and these British audiences, these, these Japanese audiences, and just kind of railed it at them for an hour on on the poison of nationalism and how nationalism and the entire you know modern world system basically was diminishing humanity um, by turning us into what he calls professionals. By turning Wait a minute. In. So he he wasn't going to fill that little sidebar bit in the textbook. That no, you you can't just put Tagore in a little box, yeah, and, and oh, put him okay. on the side of the textbook. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, again, like what they wanted him to talk about, I'm not clear. I think in Britain, the America, and and United States at a time in which you know there was this fascination with all things quote unquote Oriental. Maybe they wanted to say some 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 kind of uh, you know mildly spiritual things to offer sucker to, you know, an American audience that was feeling the, the weight of materialism or something like that. But what he actually did is he excoriated them for buying into the system of nationalism. He refers to nationalism as um, uh, a scientific product made in the political laboratory um, through the dissolution of personal humanity. And his feelings was that in, in, in adopting this system of nationalism, we are turning ourselves into mere cogs in a machine. And in doing so, we are losing the actual purpose of, of humanity. Um, and so uh, it's a it's a brilliant thing to read uh, now. Again, it's not really, I think, in the public consciousness. Um, it's available if you if you want to read it. Rabindranath Tagore, it's on nationalism. It's just available as a free book on the internet. As far as I know, it's not been republished in many, many decades. Um, but it's such a, a brilliant um, record of this incredible thinker at this moment in time, 1918, just at the end of World War I, uh, where we've seen, you know, the full flowering of the destructiveness of the modern world system. And, uh, you know, Can so, I ask you, let me ask you something. Yeah. So one of your four major themes you said was nationalism. Yeah. Right. Along with capitalism, imperialism, racism. Um, so you're writing this book. Are you saying that you wouldn't be allowed or it wouldn't pass muster with either the committee or whoever's beyond your committee, you know, whatever audience ultimately, you know, agrees or, or disagrees to these things, uh, which is another, another interesting conversation, but yes. that, that if you were to write about nationalism, centering Tagore's very critical voice of someone who's lived experience on the ground in one of these colonial realms, right? Yeah. In this case, British 
let's say British nationalism. Yeah. Um, if you tried to center the narrative in your piece on nationalism that you feel what what would happen? Um, I would be able to I, I don't think there'd be a I don't think I'd be kept from writing it. But it just so happens the chapter I'm writing does not is in this, you know, it's the early modern period. So I don't get a chance to talk about nationalism. It's not it's not my I didn't get assigned that job, basically. So what that means is that nationalism is getting covered in a, in a different chapter. And the nationalism that's getting covered, the way it's getting covered is not going to recognize Tagore's. It's going to discuss nationalism as just one of the ideologies of the 19th century. To be what would be the advantage of addressing Tagore, though? Let alone centering him in the narrative. If you, you know, if you were poised to write that or, or giving advice to anybody else, would you see a fundamental restoration happening there? I mean, would it would it add up to something to feature a voice like Tagore's? What 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 it represents is the fact that right from the start, right? Because this is early on, 1918. You know, Indian nationalism barely getting started, right? It's this is Gandhi has just gotten back to India from South Africa. We've had a few major moments in the kind of Indian nationalist uh, movement, um, but we're just about to get to this kind of turning point where, you know, Indian nationalism becomes a, a mass movement. Um, and already, though, we have Tagore who sees these things in, with such a clear eye before you're really seeing these kind of critiques of, of nationalism. I, I would I would argue, and maybe there's a, a few others out there, I would argue that at this point, it's hard to find somebody who's critiquing nationalism with the same vigor and the same consistency as, as Tagore was. And so what it represents is, because the way that the modern world history, the 20th century world history is often told is this series of crises, right? And these are crises that result from, for instance, the rise of fascism or something like that, right? And the rise of fascism can easily be talked about as the result of, you know, this post-war period, you know, post-1918, as there's this attempt at recovery, and there's, you know, you can do all the 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 kind of hit all the the little moments, you know, hyperinflation in Germany, and that you know leaves an opening for Hitler and the Nazis and this kind of stuff. But what we need to suggest is that you know the Nazis don't just come about and fascism does, doesn't just come about because of specific post-war conditions. The Nazis and fascism come about because those ideas are built into the very nature of of the modern world system, and that's not something that you know, a Western writer is going to going to be able to speak to. But it is something that somebody like Tagore, who's experienced, you know, nationalism and imperialism at the ground level, right? Not as things as as just ideas, you know, not just as abstractions, but as sources of power, systems of power that operate upon him, right? That he, what he's able to identify, you know, and this is, you know, 40 years before we get Amy Cesare saying some of the same, same things. Um, 50 years before we've seen a number of Western writers saying the same things. We've got Tagore right from the start saying, this is going to lead to destruction. There's no possibility that you can create a system um, that makes room for, you know, only a certain way of being in a certain way of thinking and a certain form of power without destroying ourselves in, uh, in the end. He says, for instance, when society allows itself to be turned into the perfect organization of power, which is what he says nationalism is all about, the nation is all about, then there are few crimes which it is unable to perpetrate because success is the object and justification of a machine while goodness is the object of man. So his whole thing is that humans are good. Humans you know, should be moral. Humans should think of, of our fellow humans. But what nationalism has created is a system where all that matters is competition, 
all that matters is these you know ideas of success all that matters is is kind of acquisition and growth and these sorts of things and um that can't help but lead to the calamities we're going to see over the rest of the 20th century right so what what appears in traditional histories as these moments of crisis come out of the writings of somebody like Tagore and we can talk about it, certainly other people are doing this as well mainly from the colonized world by the way um what they're saying is no this is built into the very structures of the system. And so if we're going to write histories that just keep telling the stories of crisis and calamity as these, you know, moments of context, right, where we can talk about the 1920s and the the crisis of hyperinflation, then what we're doing is we're ultimately giving cover to the system. Right? And I think that's what so often is happening even in kind of versions of the story, you know, by sensitive people who recognize that there are victims of the system. What we still end up doing is giving cover to the system by talking about everything as if it occurs in the moment, as if every crisis comes out of nowhere, as it never could have been anticipated. Um, when it's not that hard to find lots and lots of people, you know, I don't know about lots and lots, but but to find people like Tagore who were anticipating these things right from the very start, who saw where they were going um, and didn't see the end of history, didn't see liberal democracy as the solution to everything, um, but saw, in his case, nationalism as the end of as the end of humanity um as the end of goodness as the end of ethics as the end of of you know what he saw as what should be the pur- purpose and point of all society which is to be kind to be just um and to think about and work for the betterment of our our fellow humans yeah you know it's it's a tangled web right because yeah. A lot of these narratives, uh, you know, in these survey courses that we teach and the textbooks that we assign, you know, were, were created from a, a base of nationalism, of yeah. exaltation, you know, uh, even in the case, I would say, of, of empire, you know, for, for, for many years, uh, the kind of patriotic exalting of empire, yeah. you know. Um, so here's a person uh, a divergent voice when viewed from the center of that narrative, uh, you know, an outlier or something who might merit a little text box, you know, on a, on a page in the textbook, but who, you know, it seems to me what you're saying really, his voice needs to be centered because he was very attuned to some of the pathologies that were inherent in these isms, nationalism. Yes, that's really well said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that that uh, unless we understand the nature of those pathologies from the people who actually experience them firsthand, right. that we're not in any kind of position to understand why there are homeless people in St. James Park. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, among other things, you know, that that in other words, these problems, as you point out, just seem to crop up. These mm-hmm. crises just seem to happen. Fascism just seems to follow from certain, you know, economic conditions in Germany, hyperinflation or something in the 1920s, when in fact fascism itself came out of the very marrow of nationalism. Yeah. You know, if you want to point to one of the pathologies of nationalism, the fascism wouldn't be a bad one, which then would help us understand January 6th in the United States, mm-hmm. would help us understand Ted Cruz at a Yankees game. Yeah. You know, and any number of things. Um, so, I mean, I really like I, I really like where you're going there with that assessment. This isn't just a matter of multiculturalism. You know, let's privilege some India, some some Bengali thinker. You know, as yeah. you know, he he gets into the 
the story somehow, but it's no, let's actually listen to what he has to say. Right. And, you know, I keep circling back to Fukuyama, not because that, again, that piece was like so boring and ephemeral in, in some ways, but it was such a great statement of, you know, a certain view of, of these narratives, which was that, you know, he's essentially seeing history and politics in these kind of evolutionary terms where like, you know, these various ideologies compete and then, you know, one loses and one wins. And then at the end, there's one uh, ideology standing and that's liberal democracy. And therefore, you know, that's the one that that's the best. That's the end of history. Um, but what he's not really, you know, making any reference to is the fact that it's not just a simple competition, you know, between equally uh, uh, influential ideologies. It's that the the kind of hegemony of that liberal capitalist um, vision of of the world is not just allowing competition. It's it's literally going in, you know, as these ideas are in their, you know, in their their nursery, we'll say, and snuffing them out. Right. It's ridding us of any alternatives, not just through a natural competition, but through, um, you know, this almost exterminationist, exterminationist policy that any contenders have to go away. And I don't mean this because the, the traditional way of thinking this is that, you know, we have Marxism on the one hand and, and capitalism on the other. And if one goes away, you know, as Fukuyama says, that's what happens in 92. Then we get capitalism, a little liberal democracy standing. But, you know, there's been so many alternative ideas out there. There's so many different visions that are out there. And if we never uncover those visions, if we never express those visions, then they get to stay in their graves, right? They 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 stay in the very place they were placed by the system, which is they were relegated to that dustbin. And, you know, Tagore speak, speaks of this. He says, um, you know, basically people critiquing his ideas um, and they say, uh, he, he says, you say that does not matter. The unfit must go to the wall they shall die. And this is science, right? So he's trying to speak up against nationalism. They're saying that doesn't matter. Um, you know, your ideas are unfit, therefore they have to die. And he says, no, for the sake of your own salvation, I say they shall live. And this is truth. And so, you know, that's to me a challenge. That's a challenge to historians to not let stuff like this die, to not let it just go to the wall and be executed and, in, in you know, buried in the ground and never recovered again. We got to do our best to exhume those those old ideas, to exhume those old visions, because it's not people like Fukuyama that were right. It's not people like, you know, Ted Cruz who were right. It's not the dude, you know, on your uh, on your Instagram feed who was right. It's people like Tagore who are right. And they saw it right from the beginning. And to say they're right doesn't mean that every single thing they said was correct in their, you know, their vision of of, of what society could be is perfectly you know possible. But the more we extinguish ideas in their infancy again i'll say this again i'll say it over and over again the more we limit our imaginations and consign ourselves to this kind of dreary future where the best we can hope for is joe biden in the white house and the slow decay of of society underneath our feet yeah man that that's um that's spot on i think um you know that that bit about uh limiting our imaginations i mean and that's that's really what orthodoxies do after all yeah. You know, including historical orthodoxies, you know, including, uh, you know, textbooks and survey courses that present a certain story in a certain way with certain highlighted episodes mm -hmm. that all redound to the same conclusion that not to worry, folks. Yes, there are crises, but look at how we overcome them and look at isn't it all going in the right direction? I mean, you know, one of my students on that agriculture uh, yeah. essay, Josh, said that. Uh, 
know, the, the what agriculture showed is that, you know, we can resolve any crisis that comes along. <laughs> you know, and I was yeah. really chuckling, you know, and I couldn't help but leave a you know, comment that said, well, you know, I mean, like, uh, overpopulation and climate crisis. Uh, we've we've taken care of that, have we? You know, yeah. Um, which happened to both be tied to agriculture, but okay. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And and you know what I would say with like Fukuyama is one of the things that bugs you about that, right? Is it's just glib. Yeah. You know, it's just very glib. I was reading a, a, a review the other day by Edmund Morgan, the late Edmund Morgan, who was one of the deans of post-war U.S. history, Yale professor, and. Uh, he wrote a review of Gary Nash's book uh, called The Unknown Revolution about the American Revolution. And Nash was one of the leaders of a, a kind of new social history and a, a, a sort of leftist uh, history in the 1970s and 80s. A fabulous, fabulous, very talented historian, Gary Nash, uh, also now the late Gary Nash. But uh, when he reviewed Nash's book back in uh, 2005 or something, he says, OK, fine. So, uh, you know, Professor Nash brings all these divergent voices into the narrative. But what of it, basically, says Morgan. These people, none of them won. Uh, see, none yeah. of them won. Yep. You know? And and it's that kind of kind of chauvinistic view that history is really about the winners or something. You know, and and it was so maddening to go back and look at that because at the time. I, w- I would hope that I would have responded at the same time, the same way to it. I think I probably would have, but even now it looks even more chauvinistic, doesn't yep. it? It's, it's, it's exactly the thing I'm talking about. Yeah. They, they lost. So let's just forget about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually writing the introduction to the, to the uh, textbook as well, which is another issue because I'm like, all right, I'm going to write this textbook. This is going to express my views of things. And then the actual textbook will be filled with stuff that doesn't actually represent what I said in the textbook or in the introduction. But, but, you know, so what I want to do in the introduction is kind of lay out some of the problems of history, like, you know, basically do my, our, our ag stuff at, in the, in the introduction and talk about, you know, the workings of power and history and this kind of stuff. And the way I want to end that, that, that uh, intro is by, you know, proposing the better, a better way. Um, what would it look like? In fact, we did this stuff the right way. And the first thing I have is we got to keep the voice of resistance alive. Um because, you know, this stuff you've talked about, like, you, you know, these, these quote unquote slave insurrections, slave rebellions, where for so long, they're just these, you know, these moments that happened, but they didn't succeed. Therefore, we don't need to talk about them. And as you've, if you, as you've talked about, you know, on this podcast and then, you know, is in our own conversations that that's a terrible way to look at things, right? The fact they didn't win is not the most important thing. The fact that this resistance was happening and happening frequently speaks to the very nature of the structure and the system and and the humans involved, right? So mm-hmm. by relegating those things to just, you know, losing efforts, um, you know, vastly understates their actual significance. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to do real history, then we can't just talk about, you know, in the old cliche, those who won, you know, the victors write the history. We got to constantly be thinking about who was resisting? How did they resist? What was the nature of their resistance? Because that's got to inform, you know, how we think of the past as well. Well, and and how we think of those pathologies yes. that we still are are living, you know, um, in in our own time, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, they have legacies, they have pedigrees, they have histories. Uh, they didn't just happen, as you say, like a crisis suddenly, you know, that that emerged, you know, unexpectedly or something like that earthquake yesterday. <laughs> it yeah. would be like saying, who, who would have ever thought there was an earthquake in San Jose? You uh-huh. know, and the entire natural history of San Jose <laughs> has been filled with earthquakes, but. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's so important, you know, because again, so, uh, you know, I want to underline this, that we're not just talking, this isn't multiculturalism, you know, this right. isn't, oh, here's, you know, here's what an Indian writer had to say. It's figuring out ways of restoration, you know, to learn from the insights, how to tell the story uh, better. And uh, we're going to uh, finish today with an example now drawn um from some recent writing on what I think is one of the most vital areas, uh, you know, of of our profession and our literature of, of folks who are really challenging themselves to figure out that um, process of re restoration that is taking a, a subject that has long been featured a certain way in the in the big narrative and trying to really dramatically reframe it. So, uh, you ready for that? Let's do it. Four dogs in the distance. Each stands for silence, yeah. Bluebirds lodged in an evergreen. All drunk, gonna shine out in the wild kindness. I'm gonna shine out in the wild kindness. I'm gonna shine out in the Yeah, so you're going to tell us a story um, from a, from a slave ship, and it's such an important story, one that you know is so easily overlooked, because as as you've talked about, we've talked about on the on the podcast so often, the history of the slave trade, the history of the the institution of slavery, ends up just being like this history of of marks in a ledger, you know, slaves bought, slaves sold, deaths, uh, these sorts of things, and you know, I think part of the the real new frontier of of historical study is really trying to you know resuscitate to uncover the actual lives of 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 people involved in this horrific institution so you you've got this great example from from a slave ship in which we get a clear look at you know the actual life and feelings and spirituality and and I, I hesitate to use the word agency, but but the the self sovereignty. I'll use your term, the self sovereignty of those involved. Yeah, thank you. Um, and let me say right up front what this is not right, because I mean the two typical ways of dealing with this in the narrative or the history survey would have been for many 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 years, many decades to just ignore it. Yeah, you know um, that is because like our friend in St. James Park, it didn't fit the narrative, mm -hmm. you know, the triumphal narrative, the glib narrative, uh, or then, you know, for every action, there's a reaction. And so particularly, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, there was a need to kind of expose everything about slavery, which was very necessary, you know, because you go from a subject that's been essentially silenced or masked or erased or something, yeah, you know, then, then you got to bring it out and lay it on the table unless, you know, you're stuck with a gun with the wind version of happy, you know, loyal slaves or something. Mm -hmm. So that was a necessary part of where the storytelling went. But then, you know, more recently in the last, say, this last generation, you know, scholars, uh, particularly black scholars saying, yeah, but it, it, then it's sort of, you end up with a kind of uh, either a, a trauma porn, yeah, you know, the kind of um, what, you know, uh, you know, explicit narrative of suffering, 
Right. You know, someone tied to a whipping post or something, you know, because there's no shortage of that. I mean, that's one thing that enslavement did create. It was, you know, violence on the body. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you start narrating it too much, it almost starts sounding a little purient, you know, the way the blood flowed down somebody's back or something, you know. Well, and it's the ultimate, you know, in in that kind of active versus passive. It's just another example where they show up in the story, but only to be acted upon. Right. Which yes. is, you know, is obviously yeah. important to understand that that the horrors and the cruelty and the and the violence of it. Right. Um, but we have so many stories already of of you know non-white people being acted upon um, that it's it does become excessive when that is the only way they show up. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 it doesn't necessarily advance your understanding because it reduces then the victim to a kind of stock character of suffering. Yeah. You know, and what do you do with that? Right. You know, uh, in other words, where do you go from there? You know, it, it, it's almost like you put the mask back, back on the person you deny personhood, you deny whatever agency or self-sovereignty or any kind of um, sort of recognizable human element. And then you can go, the, the pendulum can swing the other way and you say, well, we're going to find heroic figures. Yeah. You know, we're going to find those who led the rebellions, uh, you know, uh, be they, you know, shipboard rebellions, for example, in the case of the slavers, the slave ships, you know, and then we're going to sort of create statues for those folks. But then, you know, okay, maybe that's a necessary corrective. You know, you got a statue of Napoleon, then you get a a statue of Toussaint, you know, Louverture, you know, the hero of the Haitian Revolution or something. But then you're just stuck with statues. And what have we been saying, Josh, about statues from the first episode of History Against the Grain? They're not history. Right. They're static. You know, they're they're furniture pieces or something, you know. So what this uh, this generation, I think, of scholars, uh, many of them black scholars, many of them just working in the um, area of black history, uh, that is scholars of you know various backgrounds working there. Some of the most really creative, I think, really smart, vital stuff that's been going on, certainly in U.S. history, but also the broader Atlantic world, that sort of corner of global history, uh, has been to look into these experiences uh, of those who were enslaved to find neither trauma porn nor stock hero narratives, but to understand what we might call a a sort of human element. And if we can tease from them something like a voice, and the thing that you're confronted with right away is that in the archives, the vast majority of our archival materials, I mean, you've been to Seville, right? Or you've Mm. been to Madrid, you've looked in, you know, the archives of Spain. You know, I've been in the archives of the United States. It's not hard to imagine that most of what you're going to find in those archives are, are, his historical evidence presented from whose voice? Well, it's it's either, you know, the voice of power or those appealing to power, right? So it ends up being the same thing because, you know, it's those trying to get the attention of the powerful or the powerful themselves telling their own story. Yeah. So even if you're looking for those who, who weren't on the right side of that power, let's say native peoples in the Spanish empire, you're typically going to find them, but only through the lens of what, some Jesuit priest or somebody, you know, who's who's in effect writing the narrative for those people, or you're going to find it in the case, let's say of, uh, you know, of a slave ship, some white, you know, maybe British junior officer who was keeping a diary or something. So even when we do find 
you know, these uh, these sort of um, subaltern peoples or marginalized peoples or peoples who are on the wrong side of, of the power quotient, you know, even then we're only going to get them sort of indirectly through the narrative lens of some, you know, colonial uh, administrator, some, you know, a Catholic priest, some slave ship officer. Okay, so this all adds up to a really great challenge, in other words, is how do we tease lived experience of, of people who simply weren't centered in their own narrative at the time and therefore never made it into the archives for the most part? Well, the can the answer is it's tough, you know, mm. and and but one of the ways that you, you do it is you find those mediated um stories, mediated, that is, even through in this case, a British author, a British uh who was one of those junior officers aboard a slave ship who did keep a diary and who did record an episode that we would otherwise have no idea about. Now, again, this comes from Vincent Brown, is the very talented, very smart historian I like a lot. Uh, try not to hold it against him, Josh. He's at Harvard now. Vincent Brown is. He's the enemy. Uh, but hey, at least he's from California. Does okay. that help? Went to UC San Diego. Uh, so uh, yeah, okay. So, but Vincent Brown is doing a lot of remarkable work in what we call sort of the Atlantic world. Um, that is the Western Hemisphere in the age of uh, the colonial age of empire and empire building. Uh, doing work on uh, the life of the enslaved. He wrote a book on Tacky's Rebellion, for example, an award-winning book recently on a on a, a slave uprising in Jamaica, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so going into the broader sort of source material of the Atlantic world to find what he can about the experience of the enslaved. And, and about 10 years ago, he wrote a, an article called uh, for the American Historical Review called Social Death and Political Life and the Study of Slavery. Uh, and he uh, begins uh, this piece by narrating a story uh, from, as I say, what was essentially the diary entry of a young British um, junior officer aboard a slave ship, what were called slavers, uh, in the uh, the period of when, when Britain really uh, monopolized, nearly monopolized the transatlantic slave trade. And so what I'd like to do here is just to read from Vincent Brown's essay because I can't improve upon it sure. if I try to, uh, you know, give you a synopsis or something. Aboard the Hudibras in 1786, in the course of a harrowing journey from Africa to America, a popular woman died in slavery. And by the way, the Hudibras was the name of one of these slave ships. Mm -hmm. Although she was, quote, universally esteemed among her fellow captives as a, quote, oracle of literature, an orator and a songstress. She is anonymous to historians because the sailor on the slave ship who described her death, the young William Butterworth, did not record her name. Yet he did note that her passing caused a minor political tumult when the crew herded the other enslaved women below decks before they could see the body of their fallen shipmate consigned to the water. This woman was no alienated isolate to be hurled over the side of the ship without ceremony. She had been, according to Butterworth, the, quote, soul of sociality. Hmm. The women were on the quarterdeck. There she had knelt, quote, nearly prostrate with hands stretched forth and placed upon the deck and her head resting on her hands, close quote. Then, 
quote, in order to render more easy the hours of her sisters in exile, the woman would sing slow airs of a pathetic nature and recite such pieces as moved the passions, exciting joy or grief, pleasure or pain, as fancy or inclination led. And then Vincent Brown writes, around her, the other women were arranged in concentric circles with the innermost ring comprising the youngest girls and the elderly on the perimeter, a fleeting makeshift community amid the chaos of the slave trade. All right, so that's the episode that Vincent Brown lays out. Uh, and what he wants to do with it uh, is to suggest that it is possible to find in these stories of great trauma and violence and enslavement in this case, a story that in this case has ostensibly, what a sad ending. I mean, this yeah. this is an enslaved woman who has died after all. There's no happy resolution. You know, it's not as if the enslaved people will rise up and overcome the, the crew and free themselves and sail back to Africa or something, mm -hmm. right? You know, we know where this is going. And as he points out, it's most likely that everyone who was aboard that ship who survived the transit ended up living out their lives enslaved in some British Sugar Island colony, maybe Jamaica or somewhere else, you know. Oh, that's the best of all possible worlds, though, right? Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. If you yes, if you do follow that model, that liberal democracy model that our friend Francis Fukuyama wants us and insists we must continue to hew to. Well, okay. So what does uh, Vincent Brown want to want to want to do with this? And and I think this is where you know, we make our point about centering these voices, not for just some oh, feel good heritage moment, you know, mm -hmm. uh some multicultural, you know, well see, we've we've put you into the story too. Um he wants to recover something of the essential humanity of people who are on that wrong side of the power equation, let's say. Uh, and he wants to do that because part of what he's, you know, I mean, he's he's fighting against here is a narrative that saw in this equation of power and enslavement, nothing but a narrative of ultimate death. We might call it the zombie narrative, you know, mm -hmm. it actually comes out of the, the sort of the, the Creole context of, of, of Haitian slavery, you know, of the, the, uh, the never dying but dead figures of, of slavery's history. Uh, he says there's more to it. And, and, and truth be told, just revealing my cards here a little bit, he's working against uh, a popular and uh, influential thesis by a, a Harvard, another Harvard scholar, a sociologist, a West Indian. Uh, I think uh, Orlando Patterson was Jamaican, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote a book in 1982 called Slavery and Social Death. And what the sociologist did was depict slavery as a system ultimately of social death. That is to be enslaved in the Atlantic world was to be forcibly, you know, severed from the um, rudiments of our social existence. So starting with families, parents from children, siblings from one another, um, communities torn asunder, um, rendered legal non-entities in the laws of the Western Hemisphere uh, with no uh, sovereign claims on, on the law of any kind, you know, and often, you know, uh, facing this kind of abject violence, you know, and trauma, uh, and then ultimately death 
you know, to be reduced only to the simplest sort of element, elementary sort of laboring being, you know, that, yeah. that, that was the, the kind of view of slavery that was really the corrective to the gone with the wind, you know, understanding of a benevolent paternalistic slavery. But what Vincent Brown says is that, well, what, Patterson did is he created an effective metaphor, social death, the idea of trying to define slavery as someone who's, you know, torn from those elements of social existence. And as far as it goes, I suppose it's a relatively, what, uh, accurate, descriptive of what the legal and imperial systems actually did to enslave people, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's but, a memorable term, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And so, but what does it leave out? Once having reduced the enslaved person to that abject status, says Vincent Brown, it leaves us really with anywhere to go. That is, what we want to do is be able to proceed not by either, um, you know, glossing over the horrors of slavery, nor by getting stuck in the trauma porn of slavery, but by finding some kind of perspective. You know, Vincent Brown says he wants to call slavery not a condition, but a predicament. Mm -hmm. you think that matters it's so important i mean this this gets to you know just the use of language you know and and calling people who are in the situation uh calling them slaves you know as as it was most common you know is a very different thing than calling them the enslaved right because yeah. it's a condition not uh an identity it's not a part of their nature it's it's right it's a um predicament as i think it's a great way to put it I like that a lot, too, because predicament suggests that it's the onus is still on you to try to figure out your best way to navigate it. Yeah. Right. As an enslaved person. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The predicament might even be a life and death predicament. And so you're going to do your level best to what? To survive, you know, to 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 preserve some element of your own identity or humanity or something. Uh, Vincent Brown says of the uh, the incident aboard the Hudibras, he says, in fact, the funeral was an attempt to withstand the encroachment of oblivion and to make social meaning from the threat of anime. And, you know, and I found myself looking up, I think it's Durkheim, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Anime, uh, which translates as a personal state of isolation and anxiety resulting from a lack of social control and regulation. Um, it renders you a kind of non-entity, anime. Yeah. And so, so, so Vincent Brown says, we, we can't accept that because it's not realistic. He says it, it also allowed the women in the case on this slave ship to publicly contemplate what it meant to be alive and enslaved. The death right thus enabled them to express and enact their social values, to articulate their visions of what it was that bound them together, made individuals among them unique and separated this group of people from others. The scene thus typifies the way that people who have been pronounced socially dead, that is, utterly alienated and with no social ties recognized as legitimate or binding, have often made a social world out of death itself. You know, you almost have to pause for a second, mm -hmm. right? Because he's talking about this liminal space. It's, it's neither death nor freedom per se. It's somewhere in this liminal space in between. But it is not void of what? It is not void of humanity and personhood. These people were working in a very difficult historical moment, you know, to retain the elements 
of their own humanity. In this case, their victory, if you want to call it that, was that they were able to impress upon the crew of the ship to let them do these funerary rites for their fallen, um, uh, you know, their, their fallen friend, you know, this, this leader among them. And look, whether out of their own selfish reasons, you know, maybe condescending, they decided it was better to let them have this small gesture than to risk maybe some greater, what, some greater resistance or something. Yeah. In this case, they allowed it to go forward. And the women, as Vincent Brown um, related, were able to have this moment of solemnity, you know, this, this moment of, uh, you know, ritual passing that he wants to say allowed them to maintain that sense of, um, you know, of, of being living beings, of being sentient beings. And we've seen this in other areas, like even like in Holocaust histories, you yeah. know, as bad as things were, and they were, uh, you know, almost uh, unimaginably bad in, in, say, the death camps, you know, you find these moments and and it's not due to what the generosity or beneficence of the um you know the uh you know the germans you yeah. know or the slave owners or something like that you know uh it's it's out of the sheer negotiation the existential negotiation of living that yeah. no matter no matter how uh, dire the circumstances, that impulse will in some measure be present, whether or not it will be acknowledged, recognized, or whatnot. So what Vincent Brown is saying is that in writing of these stories, you know, these, these histories, let us preserve those moments for what they are. Let's not exaggerate them. Let's not make greater claims than they afford, because really what we're looking for is a, a human moment. And if we want to understand ultimately what enslavement was, instead of going to the archives and simply reading from the script of, you know, records, documents, archival detritus, you know, written from the perspective of those who inflicted that punishment upon the enslaved, you know, let's tease from that if we can something of what the experience for the enslaved was. Uh, on their own right, because among other things, not only will help us preserve the humanity of that narrative, it means we won't have to ignore it. We don't have to be the nervous reporter over in St. James Park, right, holding to the tight frame, lest somebody unhoused walks into it. Uh, we can we can forthrightly acknowledge it. And uh, if we do our work, you know, our due diligence, we can also then bring from it a much greater diagnosis of what those pathologies were in these systems that we so often glibly uh, treat. Yeah, that's that story is so amazing because you know what it's doing is is something which is so important. It's taking what could be a very abstract thing. I think the story of of slavery and the slave trade is often talked about in abstract term abstract terms because we get stuff like you know the the schematic drawings of the slave ship and you know in the famous version of that you have like these little images you know drawn into the slave ship representing enslaved people. But they exist as almost like these just little smudges on a on a on a drawing. And what that story does is it takes those, you know, what otherwise might just be, you know, as I said, numbers on a ledger, kind of smudges on this drawing of the slave ship, and it turns them into, you know, from being abstractions to being humans. Um, and you know, as as Vincent Brown says, we don't want to overstate the importance of this one moment, but certainly what you can imagine is if we can find enough of those moments, what we get is something 
you know, the, the weight of those examples turns into something bigger than any individual example could be. Um, and I guess that kind of gets at the, the larger project, the larger story is that we have to be better about not on the one hand, abstracting those who are subject to power, but also not abstracting power itself. And so maybe we can end um, with something from Tagore, just because he's been on my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about, uh, you had this really nice uh, phrase, you said, um, uh, the enslaved people on the ship were on the wrong side of the power equation. And Tagore also talks about that that equation. Uh, he talks about the, the governors versus the governed. And he says, but we who are governed are not a mere abstraction. We on our side are individuals with living sensibilities. What comes to us in the shape of a mere bloodless policy may pierce into the very core of our life, may threaten the whole future of our people with a perpetual helplessness. And he goes on to say, uh, you know, punishments are meted out, which leaves a trail of miseries across a large bleeding tract of the human heart. But these punishments are dealt by a mere abstract force, you know, in the traditional telling, not by humans, but by this abstraction of power in which a whole population of a distant country has lost its human personality. So the stories, you know, like that of, of, of Vincent Brown or that story, you know, what it's doing is it's recovering that human personality. It's mm-hmm. taking power from being an abstraction and turning it into, you know, this particular uh, officer on this particular ship who's himself having to, to you know, work with this kind of negotiations between himself as the governor and those who are who are governed. And I think, you know, it kind of points the way toward a better kind of history. And what it's going to have to involve is not allowing abstractions to become the whole story, but as much as we can to allow humanity to shine through. And not just on one side of that power equation, but on, on all sides. Um, and that will, you know, maybe allow us to recover something of a, of, of a picture that doesn't just include a guy standing on a grassy field, but shows, uh, you know, the whole context and world around him as well. Here, here, partner. This has been episode 59. Uh, always fun and uh, therapeutic, I guess, to have these discussions. And we will do it again in about one month's time. Talk to you then. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you pay into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. So we were